The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. All right. Well, hey, everyone loves a good second chance story. And uh, heading up to the Super Bowl this past February, I caught an interview with um, Jason and Travis Kelsey. If you don't know, Jason and Travis are brothers uh, who played against each other in the Super Bowl this year. Uh, Older brother Jason played center for the Philadelphia Eagles. Younger brother Travis played tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs. And it was a storyline that caught everyone's attention. You can kind of tell from that picture kind of who who maybe won, right? Um, But there was another storyline, okay, an older storyline that ran deeper. See, before they were Super Bowl rivals, the Kelsey brothers were actually teammates back in college at the University of Cincinnati. Jason was recruited and went and played there uh, first, and then Travis followed a couple years later. Uh, But in 2010, Travis was actually kicked off the team for failing a drug test. And he spent the next year working in a call center trying to get people to sign up for Obamacare. Um, But then his big brother Jason started advocating for him, going to the coaches, trying to talk the coaches into bringing him back onto the team. He had Travis come and live with him to kind of put him back on the straight and narrow. And he even was bringing home workouts from practice to keep Travis in football shape. And eventually he convinced the coach to give Travis a second chance Um, If you're a football fan at all, you know how this story ends. Uh, Travis came back, he worked harder than ever, and was eventually drafted into the NFL by the Kansas City Chiefs and has become one of, some people say, one of the best tight ends to ever play the game. And according to a Kansas City Star article that I read uh, recently, uh, that head coach back in Cincinnati, I think he coaches at Arkansas State now, um, he still has today hanging in his office a framed Kansas City Chiefs Travis Kelsey jersey signed and inscripted from Travis thanking him for the second chance that he gave him. Uh, everybody loves a good second chance story. And in these opening chapters of the Old Testament book of Numbers, actually, uh, there's a second chance story too. See, remember the the biblical context that we have as we enter into chapter 9 of of, of Numbers. We're still at Mount Sinai. All right, God had brought his people up out of Egypt by Moses' leadership, and he's led them all the way to Mount Sinai back in Exodus chapter 19. And then from Exodus chapter 19, all the way to the end of Exodus, all the way through the entire book of Leviticus, all the way through the opening chapters of Numbers, up until Numbers chapter 10, verse 10, we're still there. We're still at Sinai. It's been about a year. A lot of things have happened in that year. God gave them the law and his instructions for building the tabernacle. He, he gave them the, all the, the sacrifices and, and the, he told them about the priesthood and, and he arranged the camp and he's given them travel instructions. Well, an, another thing happened in that year um, it, it was the, the golden calf incident. Remember that back in Exodus chapter 32? Moses was meeting with God, but the people grew impatient. The people grew disobedient. They convinced Aaron, Moses' brother, to make them a golden calf to worship, saying, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt, this golden cow, all right? And the Lord's wrath burned hot against them, we're told in Exodus 32, verse 10. Do you remember this? Well, in Numbers 9, in, in the context, we're just a few months after that. We're just a few months on the other side of that event, and God invites these same people to celebrate the Passover. 
He welcomes them to worship. Now, do they deserve this? No. Not at all. It's all by his grace, his unmerited favor that they are welcome to worship him through celebrating the Passover. You see it? Numbers is about a second chance. And just as Travis Kelsey's second chance didn't render hard work on his part, pointless or unnecessary, quite the opposite. So God's grace to his people doesn't render their obedience pointless or unnecessary either. Quite the opposite. Now what we see instead is that God's grace serves as the foundation for their obedience. We can apply this to ourselves today by putting it this way, that God's grace does not render our obedience pointless or unnecessary. Rather, God's grace is the foundation for our obedience. We're going to learn a lot about obedience this morning. In fact, this is a theme that's been, it's already been running all the way through the book of Numbers up until this point. But this morning, specifically, we're going to see God's people obey eagerly, diligently, corporately, and dependently. And from them, and applying this text to ourselves, we're going to learn that our obedience in our wilderness is to be marked by eagerness, diligence, corporateness. I think that's a word. I looked it up. I think, I think it works, corporateness. If not, preacher pass, right? Um, our obedience is to be marked by eagerness, diligence, corporateness, and dependence, all the while remembering that the foundation of our obedience is, in fact, God's grace. I already mentioned that chapter 9 begins with God inviting his people to keep the Passover, but it's, it's not really an invitation, is it? It's a command. Look at Numbers 9 again. Brad just read this, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its statutes, all its rules, you shall keep it. So Moses told the people of Israel they should keep the Passover. Now, this was the first Passover Uh, This is the first Passover celebration since the Exodus, meaning it's the very first Passover celebration commemorating the actual Passover back in Exodus 12. This is a big deal. Back in Exodus, before the actual Passover, when God was giving the Israelites instructions for for keeping the Passover and avoiding the the 10th plague, he instructed them, he, he told them, I want you to do this every year in remembrance of me delivering you out of Egypt and sparing your firstborn sons. And even though they were unfaithful to him shortly after that, right before this, with the golden calf, God in his forgiving grace invites and instructs them to keep it again. And they do. With the grace of God as the foundation for their obedience, they obey. Verse 5, and they kept the Passover in the first month, and the 14th day of the month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the people of Israel did. Here's a phrase we've seen repeated loads of times already in the book of Numbers. According to all the Lord commanded Moses, so the people of Israel did. That's been a theme. Right? We, we see God's people obeying God's word. We, we saw it in the taking of the census. We saw it in the arranging of the camp. We saw it in the divvying out of the, the duties to the Levites. Last week we saw God's people obeying with respect to purity in the camp. And in consecrating the tabernacle and cleansing the Levites. We see it again here in the opening five verses of chapter 9. 
But we see next in chapter 9 gives us a deeper insight into the character of their obedience. Look at, look at verse 6. It says, There was certain men who were unclean through touching a dead body, so they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day, and those men said to him, We are unclean through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering as its appointed time according, or I'm sorry, among the people of Israel? Now, what we see here is their eagerness to obey. The, the, the situation is such that some of the Israelites have come into contact with a dead body. That's not, you know, unexpected. There's a, with a population of nearly two and a half million people, people are dying every day, right? And, and to be in contact with a dead body, like the body of a loved one, rendered a person unclean and unable to keep the Passover. But notice, they're, they're not like, ah, bummer. Yeah, I guess we'll just, we'll catch it next year. No, they're not like one of my friends who told me that his favorite kind of meeting is a canceled meeting, right? No, they come eagerly. They come eagerly to Moses and they ask, is there any way that we can still celebrate? Now, pause here and ask yourself this. Does this kind of eagerness mark your obedience? Hmm? Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, You'll keep my commandments. Do, do, do you think that he had sort of wrote, you know, go through the motions of obedience in mind there? Ah, if I have to, I guess I will. No. He says, if you, if you love me. See, our obedience spawns forth from our love. Love compels us to obey. And because love is the driving force, we obey eagerly. And I love verse 8 in the text when Moses, they ask Moses, Moses says, hey, hang on a second. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Let me double check with God. That's a good posture to have right there. So Moses goes to God and he asks, and, and here's God's response in verse 10. Speak to the people of Israel saying, if any one of you or of your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall keep the Passover of the Lord. In the second month of the four, on the 14th day at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break any of its bones according to all the statute for the Passover they shall keep it. Now, a couple things to notice here. One, God adds another possible exception here in verse 10. Do you notice this? Moses asked about being unclean through the touching of a dead body. God's response addresses that, and then he also adds a situation where someone is away on a long journey. Moses didn't ask about that, but God answers with that. God creates an exception for these two situations. And the workaround for missing Passover is that there's going to there's be a makeup session. All right? A second Passover celebration, actually one month after the first, in the second month on the 14th day at twilight, it says. See, God's grace comes through even here. He knows perfect obedience in this case won't always be 100% possible. But for those who are eager to obey, he graciously grants this exception. But only to those who are eager to obey. Verse 13, if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey, fails to keep the Passover. That person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. This rule, verse 14, tells us was to apply both to Israelites as well as the sojourning strangers amongst them, someone who is not an Israelite by birth but who was a follower after Yahweh. And here we have a warning, don't we? A warning to not presume upon God's grace. So together we see eager obedience rewarded, 
but lacks obedience, an attitude of ambivalence toward obedience, punished, cut off, declared sin. And so eagerness marked and was to mark their obedience. Likewise, it should mark ours. This morning's a great time for some introspection. I know a sermon on obedience doesn't just really kind of get the, 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 the vibes flowing in you necessarily. This is really important stuff for us to think about. It's a great time for some introspection, some spiritual self-reflection. Do you find yourself having an eagerness to obey God? A hunger for his word and a submissive curiosity towards what it instructs. Are you eager to, to, if you're new to Christianity or newer, are are you eager to learn it and to obey it? Or are are you lax, ambivalent maybe towards the commands of God, presuming upon his grace, even perhaps with an attitude of ignorance is bliss. Surely if I don't know, you know, God's not going to hold me accountable towards that. Or listen, maybe you've been walking with God for a number of years now. And you got the basics down. You know the gospel. You know how it works. You've learned some theology, how to handle the scriptures relatively well. You've seen God do some incredible stuff in your life in the past. But in the present, you're coasting. And your eagerness has given way to ambivalence, and you're dangerously close to presuming upon God's grace. If so, let this passage in Numbers 9 kind of have its, have its full effect on you. Like God might just be bringing about some conviction right now in your life. Don't run from that. Listen to that. Heed that. Obedience in the wilderness for us is to be marked by eagerness. Ambivalence is not tolerated. Lukewarm gets spit out in Revelation 3. Remember this? Eagerness is to mark our obedience. The second thing that's to mark our obedience is diligence diligence. Look, the rest of chapter 9, okay, verses 15 all the way down through 23 tells us all about the the cloud covering the tabernacle. It's fascinating stuff. This cloud that covered the tabernacle by day and the appearance of fire by night. I mean, we think about that and we're like, wow, that sounds like it'd be awesome to see. Whenever it lifted, God's people were to set out. And where it settled, that's where they were to camp. That's really all this big paragraph says. But you notice when Brad was reading that it says it over and over and over and over and over again? Super simple idea. When the cloud moves, you move. All right? I mean, like I could have said that in like six words. Why does the Bible say it over and over again? Well, listen, anytime you're reading the, the Old Testament history, you know, the, the narrative books here in the Old Testament here, and you come, upon, uh, you come upon repetition, even if the thing that's being repeated is super duper simple, the repetition is there to cue you in on that super duper simple thing. Let me read this paragraph to you again, and you listen and follow along, and see if you can cue in on the very simple point that's being made. Chapter 9, verse 15 to the end there. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, attend to the testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel set out. And the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. 
At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. According to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. When the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. Verse 23, at the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. What's the point? It's summarized there in the last sentence, isn't it? They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. Listen, they followed that cloud like its shadow. When it moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. They kept the charge of the Lord. And the weight of the repetition is this. They kept it diligently carefully, meticulously, attentively, without variation. They weren't lazy. They weren't casual. Their obedience was diligent. Is yours. You know, there's a lot of commands in the scriptures, not just in the Old Testament, not just parts like numbers, but in the New Testament too. There are a lot of things in the Bible that Christians are to do. Love, love God with all you got. You know, heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's not a suggestion. It's actually a command. Love your neighbors yourself. Fear the Lord. Worship him in spirit and truth. Make disciples. Trust him. Repent. Make war against sin in your life. Serve others. Bear fruit. Pray for your enemies. Forgive one another, outdo each other in showing honor. I mean, we could keep going forever here, right? There's all kinds of commands. But again, these are not suggestions. They're not best practices or life hacks that you can choose from or you know, swipe away if you don't care for that one. They're commands. And a very typical evangelical response is to, uh, is to look at the commands in the scriptures and say, oh, yeah, you know, sure, there's commands. Yeah. But there's also grace. And so we'll try our best, which usually isn't true, and God forgives the rest. Or, or we take some of God's commands very seriously. I mean, real seriously. Usually the ones we find easy to keep, personally, you know. But we sort of ignore the ones that are not so easy for us to keep or downplay those thinking, saying, hey, no condemnation. No condemnation. Jesus died for me. God forgives. Now listen, God does forgive. But if that's your attitude towards obedience, if that's the character of your obedience, a sort of laissez-faire approach, might I suggest to you that you have lost something of the holiness of God. Remember last week in the command of purity? We looked at 1 Peter chapter 1 and how as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct doesn't say some doesn't say most it says all of your conduct 
You see, friends, your obedience and mine is to be marked by diligence, carefulness, meticulousness even. Diligent to all that God has commanded, diligent in all of our circumstances, following his commands like a shadow, what they say we do. We see it here at the end of Numbers 9. God's people obeyed diligently. And as you and I journey through this wilderness of life, our obedience too is to be marked by diligence. The third thing that's to mark our obedience is corporateness. Every young parent here knows, you know, especially if you've got more than two kids, you know it can be really hard to get everyone heading in the same direction, can't it? I mean, some of you felt that way this morning, trying to get out of the house, in the car, and over here. It's like, how do we get everybody going in the same direction? Um, if you've ever tried to manage people, like in your work, or if you've ever led a gospel community, or if you've ever tried to organize like a dinner outing for friends or something like that, you know it can be really hard to get everyone headed in the same direction at the same time. Well, imagine trying to get two and a half million people headed in the same direction at the same time. See, God is seeking to lead his people to the promised land. All of them. Their obedience out of necessity must be marked by order, not chaos. There is, therefore, an essential corporate aspect to their obedience. And that's what we see in the first 28 verses of chapter 10. First with the trumpets. Second with the description of God's people setting out. And I'll note again that chapter 10, verse 11, is the point at which they finally set out. Look at chapter 10, verse 11. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud settled in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. So they set out, not on a whim, but at the command of the Lord. They didn't sit around saying, you know what? We've been here long enough. What do you all think? Let's go. No, they set out at the command of the Lord. Verses 13 through 27 tell us the order. With the tabernacle in the middle of the order. And then verse 28 there summarizes it for us. This was the order of march of the people of Israel by their companies when they set out. Now, how do they know how to set out? How do they know when to set out? Of course, there was the cloud that lifted and began to move, but still, two and a half million people. Um, they can't all start moving at once. How do they coordinate? How do they get a message to all the tribes and everyone stay on the same page? Well, the first 10 verses of that chapter tells us. Let's look at this together. Follow along as I read chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets. Of hammered work you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the chiefs, the heads of the tribes of Israel, shall gather themselves to you. When you blow an alarm, the camps, are on, uh, the camps that are on the east side shall set out. When you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown whenever they are to set out. But when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow a long blast. You shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets. The trumpets shall be for you a perpetual statute throughout your generations. All right, so we've got two trumpets, presumably with two different tones. They're to be blown by the priests, the sons of Aaron, and there are multiple purposes for them. 
First, they're to be used to summon the congregation together, all of them together. If both trumpets are blown with a long blast, everyone was together, everyone. Not just those who felt like it. All the congregation was together, verse 3 says. If just one was blown, just the chiefs were to, to gather, but all the chiefs. This was likely used to spread important messages throughout the camp. The message going first to the chiefs and then on to their respective tribes through the chiefs. Secondly, we're told that the trumpets were used to signal the breaking of camp, the setting out. In this case, they were blown as an alarm with short staccato blasts, differing from the long blasts that were doing the summoning. At the first alarm, the east side camps were to set out. The second, the south side camps were to set out. Everyone leaving at the appropriate time, everyone on the same page and heading in the same direction. No one straggling behind. No one unclear on when it was their turn. No one saying, I don't feel like it right now. Everyone was to be obeying in corporate order. We're also told of a third use of the trumpets. They were to be blown when they went into war, verse 9. And then verse 10 lists a number of other uses. On the day of your gladness, at appointed feasts at the beginning of the months, they were to be blown over the burnt offerings as well as the peace offerings. We're going to come back to that. But the point I want to make here is that there is a corporate dimension to their obedience. And there is to be with us too. You know, we live in the most individualistic age ever. Never in the history of the world has life been more individualistic than it is for us now. And the seductive temptation in such an individualistic society is to begin to think that my obedience or disobedience to the Lord really only affects me. It doesn't. It affects others around you. We are the body of Christ. And what one member of the body does or doesn't do impacts the rest of the body. An easy example to see this are the one another commands in the New Testament. Love one another, honor one another, serve one another, forgive one another, carry each other's burdens. There's many, many more, but yours and my individual obedience or disobedience to these commands has a significant impact on the body as a whole. We're to obey these commands corporately. All of us, everyone pulling in the same direction. And when we don't, chaos ensues in the body of Christ. Trouble, strife, unreconciliation. Example two, any secret sin in your life. If there's secret sin in your life, do you really think that if that came into the light, it wouldn't affect others around you. A spouse, a friend group, your gospel community, kids, your kids, other kids in the church. If you're a leader, perhaps the whole church. Or positively, <laughs> private obedience, personal holiness walking closely with Jesus, communing with him regularly, talking with him, battling sin in your life, depending on his Holy Spirit in difficult situations, trusting him, casting your burdens upon him. When you spend time around someone who lives like that, you notice it, don't you? It has a positive effect on everyone around you. 
When someone is full of Christ and overflowing Christ into your life, it has a positive good. Listen, your personal obedience can have a significant impact in the lives of those around you. Or one more example, Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. This is a familiar one. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's a corporate command. It's to be obeyed corporately. We can apply it to Sunday mornings. We can apply it to gospel communities. That doesn't immediately make us legalists. It emphasizes we're the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, we are both needy and needed. We're therefore commanded to meet together, to stir one another up to love and good works. Don't neglect doing this, the author of Hebrews says. Don't convince yourself out of individualism that you don't need this. Don't convince yourself out of a culture of individualism that others don't need it from you. Part of our corporate obedience is showing up and being present. Not because some pastor or your parents told you that that's what good Christians do. But because as we read the word of God, we see that there's a corporate dimension to our obedience. It requires inhabited presence. A faithful presence over time where we get involved deeply in each other's lives and and love and honor and serve and forgive and, and carry each other's burdens. There's an order to it. Everyone pulling in the same direction. Everyone's obedience actually affecting everyone else. Lastly, the fourth thing that is to mark our obedience is dependence. Dependence. This one comes to us in a few different ways in the text. The first is this paragraph towards the end of chapter 10 dealing with Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab. In verse 29, Moses tries to convince Hobab to go with him. Verse 30, Hobab declines. But then in verse 31, Moses appeals again. Moses can be pretty persistent, all right? Uh, Moses can be pretty persuasive if you remember the book of Exodus. Well, look at verses 31 and 32. This is what he said to Hobab after Hobab refused. No, please do not leave us. For you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever the good Lord will do to us, the same will we do to you. Some commentators see in this passage like a slip-up on Moses' part. Like he's, he's starting to trust in man over God. There's actually nothing in the text that gives us that indication. It's probably better for us to to read this as Moses' dependence upon another, even a non-Israelite, as he seeks to obey God. Which reminds us, we need each other. We are even able to learn from those outside the church as we seek to obey our God and follow him. There's something to ponder prayerfully. How God works through his common grace, through the lives of unbelievers, even in our lives? We, like Moses, are to obey God, follow after God, not in a self-sufficient way, but in a dependent way, living dependently with and upon others. Of course, that's balanced with our dependence upon the Lord, and that's what verses 33 through 36 convey to us. Verse 33, So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. 
And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out by the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So evidently, at least for the first three days of their journey, the Ark of the Covenant led the way for them. Remember that God's presence is associated with the Ark of the Covenant. Therefore, we should understand this is God himself leading his people. They're headed to the promised land. And he's leading the way. They're following. They're dependent upon him. Where he goes, they follow. They're obeying with dependence. We see the dependence as well come out in the prayer that Moses lifts up when the ark set out, asking God to scatter their enemies, and also praising God when the ark would stop to rest, saying, return, O Lord, return to us, return with us, we need you. And of course they did. There was no way they were going to make it on their own. They needed God. Even in their obedience, they needed him. They're dependent upon him to lead, dependent upon him to scatter their enemies, dependent on him for food, as we'll later see, dependent on him for water, for courage. And so all of their obedience is to be marked with dependence. We see this also back in the section on the trumpets. Remember how they were to sound them when they're going into war and also the feasts and their offerings? Look at, look at verse 9 back in chapter 10 here. When you go into war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feasts, and at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. And so they're to blow the trumpets as an expression of their dependence upon God, that you may be remembered before the Lord your God. Not because he might forget them. This is about them acknowledging him. And also, hearing the trumpets throughout the camp was to be a reminder that the one they depended upon was indeed their God. I am the Lord your God, he says. Now, this applies to us too. In all of our obedience, we're to be dependent upon God. No matter how obedient we become, we don't become less dependent upon Him. In all of our obedience, we're dependent upon God. We're, we're following Jesus. Right? Where He goes, we go. We obey with dependence. Wherever He says to go, we go. Wherever He sends us, we go. We're dependent upon Him for direction. We're dependent upon Him. He's the vine. We're the branches. Apart from him, what can we do? What can we do, church? Nothing. And we don't blast the trumpets, but we do gather in this room and express our dependence upon him. We gather like this to lift our voices in corporate worship, not because he might forget about us if we don't, but rather to acknowledge him and acknowledge our dependence upon him. And to be reminded as we hear others lift their voices in prayer, and in confession, in scripture reading, and in song, and in preaching, that he is who he says he is. That he is the Lord, our God. Our obedience, just like the obedience of God's people in Numbers, is to be marked by dependence. Dependence. 
Now listen, there's something we have to make really clear as we wind down all this obedience talk, and it's this. The takeaway from this sermon is not try really hard to be more like the Israelites. Let us pray, you know? That's not, that's not it. If that were the takeaway, we would leave here depressed and condemned by our own inability to perfectly obey, wouldn't we? That's not the takeaway at all. In fact, as we finish chapter 10, we are just three words away from the word complained in the book of Numbers, all right? There is a downward spiral that begins in chapter 11, and all this obedience stuff we've been looking at today is replaced with complaining and grumbling and rebellion and fear and defeat. It gets real ugly real fast. God's people do not perfectly obey through their journey through the wilderness, just in case you were wondering. And every single one of us can relate to that, can't we? Because none of us are able to perfectly obey God throughout our wilderness journey called life either, are we? No, what we need is one who did. What we need is Jesus. The one who came for us. The one who after his baptism went out into the, where? The wilderness. Where he bore all of Satan's temptations in full force and passed, remaining fully obedient to his Father in heaven. Hebrews 4 tells us that he was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he, was, he perfectly obeyed. He was without sin. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Listen, he took on our sin, the sinless one did, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, Jesus was obedient all the way to the cross, all the way to his death. And when you trust in him, his obedience, his righteousness is counted as yours. Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you. He lived the, the life of perfect obedience that you were commanded to live but can't. And now because of Jesus and your faith in him, God looks upon you and sees Jesus. He sees the perfect obedience of Jesus, not your flawed attempts at obedience. And that comes to you all by grace. Only by grace. You can't earn it. You can't obey your way into it. We've already established that. You're not able. It comes by grace. We might think of it as a second chance. <laughs> Listen, it's actually way better than that. See, Jesus is not merely a God of second chances. He's a God of redemption. If all you got was a second chance, what do you think you'd do with that? You're not going to make the NFL, let's just put it that way, all right? You're going to screw it up all over again. You're going to need a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. And a sixth, you know, you're going to keep needing. God is not just a God of second chances. He's a God of redemption. And what we get is redemption. Jesus has saved you from your sin, imputed his perfect righteousness to you, and it'll never be removed. All by grace. And this grace, let me say it carefully, God's grace does not render your obedience pointless or unnecessary. Rather, God's grace is the foundation for your obedience. 
when you really understand God's grace and what he's, what he's shown you in and through Jesus, what he's done for you, when it really sets in in your heart and your heart is transformed by the Holy Spirit, you'll seek to obey eagerly. Not perfectly, but eagerly. You'll seek to obey diligently. You'll seek to obey corporately. You'll seek to obey dependently, depending most importantly of all on the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your forgiving grace and your generous welcome of us through Jesus. Would, would you help us, empower us now by your Holy Spirit. Empower us by your Holy Spirit, God, to walk in greater and greater obedience to you. Not to earn your love, but because we've already received it through Jesus. We pray in his perfect, obedient name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.